Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, May 5th, 2021, and this is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bovey. Today, we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking with Dr. Gerard Fashuren about his new book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. Uh, the interview is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any calls during it, but... Um, Dr. Fershuren is a scientist, writer, speaker, and consultant working at the interface of science, philosophy, and religion. He's actually a human geneticist who earned a doctorate in the philosophy of science, and he studied and worked at universities in Europe and the United States. Now, the second part is pre-recorded, but the first part is live. So if there's something that you would like to tell us about, about something going on at your parish, give us a call at 85-LOVE-RED-C. That's 855-683-7332. I want to work, uh, welcome everybody listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco. And a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. As usual, during the year of St. Joseph, we try to begin the show with a prayer to St. Joseph, and this prayer is one proclaimed by the Holy Father. So, O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain from me all the knowledge and love of the sacred heart of Jesus, and finally, to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I want to remind everybody that making this prayer during the year of St. Joseph carries with it a plenary indulgence instead of the usual partial indulgence. Now, of course, that goes with the usual um, standards for receiving an indulgence, um, going to confession, and receiving the Holy Eucharist in a reasonable period of time. Uh, Plenary indulgent is the complete remission of the temporal punishment due to sins that have already been absolved through the sacrament of confession. So this is not your replacement for going to confession. Um, but you can also offer this indulgence especially for a deceased family member who may be in purgatory. So, And it's always a good idea to just add the little prayer, and if that person has been released, then apply that to a soul in need. Um, the year of St. Joseph is um, one of the great gifts the church gives us because 
The church tends to give us gifts to remind us that there are the areas of our spirituality that we can increase, things that we can reflect on. And the reason we have saints in the first place is because each one of them offers us something unique, something that no other saint really gives us. And especially with St. Joseph, the silent saint. Silence is something that's totally absent in our lives today. I was just thinking the other day that I have not really had silence in years. There's train whistles. There's humming of lights. There's traffic outside. There's all these things that we're constantly exposed to. I remember as a child, we could sit outside and there would be no sound whatsoever. Uh, the greatest thing is right before a thunderstorm, mm. when it becomes absolutely silent. Well, we need silence in our life. And perhaps nowadays, the only way to achieve that is through noise-canceling headphones. But I think that all of us, as an example, take St. Joseph. Let's find silence in our life. Let's reflect on the glory of God and what it means in our life. Because without silence, we face all these distractions that constantly intrude on our peace of mind. And every time, every time, it intrudes on our peace of mind. It intrudes on our spirituality. Let's seek silence. Thaddeus, you had something that you wanted to talk about this morning that you noticed on your, I guess, Facebook feed. That's where I saw it the first time because I didn't hear it on the national news. Good morning, Deacon Mike. Good morning. Great to be with you. Before we move on to that topic, I, I wanted to just be so bold as to say to our listeners, um, we encourage you to seek silence, even to the extent of if that means you need to turn off Red Sea Catholic Radio for an hour to have silence. Not during this show. <laughs> even if it means during this show. Ah. Do that. Silence is that important. Peace of mind is that important. Um, communion with God is that important. Yes. Okay. Uh, we love your support and we love you listening, but uh, we even would sacrifice ourselves so that you could have that silence that, that Deacon Mike talked about. That was a great meditation on that point, Deacon. Um, I did not find out about it on Facebook because I do not uh, use Facebook. Um, Heretic. But I, but I did get it through a newsletter that I subscribed to. And that's this news that uh, Lubbock, Texas, is becoming the largest city in the United States to outlaw abortion. Uh, there was a vote in the city uh, last Saturday. 62.46% uh, of voters were in favor and 37.54% opposed it. It passed. Um, so there will be no abortion allowed in the city limits of uh, Lubbock, which is a has a population of about 260,000 people. I found the story fascinating for a couple of points. The first was that it was rejected by the city council mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. And the voters kept pushing. The, and the voters forced them uh, with, through a petition to call for a vote. Mm -hmm. 
and the vote turned out to be almost two-thirds of the population that voted approving this. We would call that a, a landslide in, in a presidential election to have that kind of uh, vote percentage. Yes, and I think the, uh, the main point of bringing up this story is that in this culture of death, there are still enclaves of people who truly believe in the culture of life, who believe that it is worth fighting for, and who believe that we're on God's side in these things. And so every once in a while when we get down and we listen to the news and we seem to think that you know everything's heading in one direction and one direction only, Perhaps it's only because we're not hearing the good news. Mm-hmm. We're not hearing the things that tell us that there are still people that live their conscience. Mm-hmm. There are still people that vote their conscience. Mm-hmm. There are still people that believe in the dignity of the human life mm-hmm. and who go out and work to make it happen. Mm-hmm. It happened here in Bryan College Station when we shut down Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. It happened here in College Station when we started 40 Days for Life, Mm -hmm. which went national. Mm -hmm. And it happens in Lubbock, and it's happened in a couple of other cities in the country, Mm -hmm. just not as big as Lubbock. And it can happen in every city if there are enough people willing to say, this is what we believe and this is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. This is worth doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it just speaks to the important spiritual principle of um, circle of concern versus circle of action. Your circle of concern in this day and age can be infinite because of the kind of communications media we have, but that hasn't really changed. Uh, it hasn't widened very much your circle of action. And so local action is still very, very important because that's where you can actually make a difference is in your neighborhood, in your school, in your city, uh, so it's important to keep that circle of concern and that circle of action pretty coterminous with one another. And I would we even, get out of balance when we let those yes. get out of balance. And I would go even further than that and say that the circle of action begins in the family. Absolutely. And if we want to change the world, we need to change the families. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about silence And sometimes in the family, what we need to do is just turn off all the outside noise and just talk about what it is that we believe as a family, what it is that we want to do as a family, Mm -hmm. what things that we support as a family Mm -hmm. and move forward from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's let's pray for those uh, brave people up there in in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, let's keep our eye eye on the goal in our listening areas amongst our listeners and, and be, be ready to act locally. Yes. Now, uh, on a totally different topic, but attached to that idea of the family changing the world, uh, we're starting to see the end of the school year with which we see the end of the religious education programs at your local parish, which usually means the beginning of vacation Bible schools. Mm-hmm. One of the good things that we have available to us as families is to be able to come together as communities of faith 
and nurture the spiritual life of our children. So I ask that uh, check with your parish bulletin, find out when there's vacation Bible school for the kids in your parish, and take advantage of it. And above all, participate. And encourage your older kids to volunteer as teachers, um, leaders, you know, group leaders, babysitters. Get they just because they're maybe not they're too old for uh, the content at the at the VBS. They can still really help out in a big way, be a positive example. Yes, and and the more things we do together as a family, mm-hmm. the more we feel connected to our faith. Mm-hmm. And just a couple more minutes here, Deacon Mike. What else? Uh, what do we want to? Get, well, get out there. Probably not going to have enough time to go into this in depth, but uh, this Sunday at St. Anthony's, we had our May crowning. We do Beautiful. this at the beginning of the month of May, which is the month of Mary. Mm-hmm. And um, it brought to mind to, uh, to me that, you know, so often we fail to understand why the Catholic Church pays so much attention to Mary. And I thought, you know, there's probably somebody sitting in the congregation going, why are we putting a crown on Mary? Mm-hmm. So why do we pay such attention to Our Lady? Because everything that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary is not Mariology. It is Christology. The reason we crown Mary is because Jesus is a king. And the Bible tells us that in Jewish tradition, the queen was always the mother of the king. That's right. It was not the wives. Otherwise, they would have had 600 and some odd wives when Solomon was, uh, queens when Solomon was king. <laughs> Wouldn't have worked. So it's the mother that is the queen. So all it is when we celebrate Mary, we are celebrating Jesus. And so keep that in mind when you see the church doing something to honor Mary, we are trying to honor Jesus. This holds true for almost everything that we teach about Mary, be it when we talk to her as the Ark of the Covenant. It is talking about the fact that she carried Jesus. And so everything that we do when we talk about Mary in Catholic theology, it is not Mariology in spite of the fact that it's called that. It is literally Christology. Now, we're going to have to take a short break. On the other side, as I promised, we're going to be talking to Dr. Gerard Fashuren about his new book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. See you on the other side. And get out for Walk for Water at Merrill Green Stadium, and the search is still going on at St. Thomas Aquinas and College Station. See you later. And as promised, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Gerard Verschuren about his new book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. And Dr. Verschuren, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Mike. I am fine. I hope you too. I am doing well. And good. before we get into the book, and uh, I am fascinated by the topic, 
tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Because the title is, you know, a scientist champions the Shroud of Turin. What's your scientific background? Um, I, uh, I I started my studies in college from human biology and specialized in human genetics. So the, the DNA kind of things and, and, and all of that. So I was always interested in that part, and that is my scientific background. But gradually, while I was studying more and more, I realized that science doesn't have the answer to all our questions. So I went much more into the philosophy of science. For many people, that sounds very heavy, and it probably is, but it's... Uh, it also means that you can analyze what science really can claim, what science is able to do, but also what science is not able to do. And that last part is often forgotten, especially by scientists who like to claim that they know everything. And I have news for them. They don't know everything. And that's what I found out more and more when I studied the philosophy of science. Well, this is one of the things that uh, you find a lot nowadays. Everyone's specialized, and not only do scientists dismiss everything that's not scientific, at times they dismiss other scientists because they see the world just as they see it, and that's the extent of how far they want to think about things. Yeah, they are so specialized, they don't want to see and look any further than that. Unfortunately, that's the case, and that's why they disagree on so many things. Well, this is uh, plays into the ana- analysis of the shroud. The fact that you know there's so many different uh, purviews of science involved in studying this that you sometimes get con- conflicting reports, and everybody thinks theirs is correct. Yes, and when you look on the internet, you find everything pro and con the shroud, but a lot of that information is not very reliable. And, and besides, it claims more than it can really claim. So what I try to do in my book, The, the Shroud of Turin, is find out what are the limitations of all those results. And when you put them all together, is there a, a clearer picture that we can get from all of this? And that is probably why you are interested in the book, too. Oh, yes. And I think our listeners are going to be uh, interested in this book because you do lay out some of the problems with the findings that have been reported and some of the things that have been reported that you know may not have been uh, understood in the proper way. One of the things okay. you talk about in the book is the route the Shroud took from Jerusalem to end up in Turin and that this is pretty well documented. You know, most people aren't aware of the fact that, you know, there is a way to trace this all the way back. Isn't that true? Yes, that is true. Some people think that it's, uh, it is from Turin, or Italians like to say Torino, and that's where it is. Yes, that's true. But it had a history before. We know that it was in, uh, in Chambéry in, in France before it went to Turin. We have records of that. We, we also, that was in 1453 that it went there. So that is quite a while ago. Uh, it came from Liri. In France, where it was documented in 1356, that is quite something. And before Leary, 
people think, oh, yeah, where did it all of a sudden come from? Was it created in Leary? No, certainly not. It had already a long trip. It came across the Mediterranean. And in 1204, imagine, long ago, you were not born yet, I wasn't born yet. In 1204, it was in Constantinople. And, And we know that from many records and and people who had seen it there and who wrote it down in documents. You just have to go into archives. That's all you have to do. That's what historians like to do. I'm not a historian, but I I believe that they have the gift to find records. And where did it come from in Constantinople? It came from Edessa. Uh, Edessa is... Uh, a town that's nowadays in Turkey. And in Edessa, we find already uh, very definite records from people who had watched there uh, a cloth that was usually folded so you could only see the face of the person who was buried in it. But it also is shown in records that it was unfolded every once in a while. And it still has creases in it, and we we can find them for analysis. Those creases show how it was folded. It was in Edessa already in 544. How did it get there? Uh, there, are, there is a record from a historian uh, long ago who said it was somehow given to a king that was later in charge of Edessa. And it probably came and, and now I have to be a little vaguer. It came from Jerusalem. And I will show later on, when you analyze all the scientific data, there is so much evidence that it had been in Jerusalem. So is there any, any more that we need to know? I always say the shroud of Turin keeps surprising us. And the best surprise is that it's more and more likely to be the shroud of Jesus that survived persecutions from the first Christians, fires, two fires at least, mishandling by people, and scientific scrutiny. So my claim is that it came originally from Jerusalem, and it was probably handed over gradually to countries more to the north of Jerusalem, because that is where the Christians were located. And I can assure you For them, it was an important relic because they had nothing left from Jesus because he had no grave anymore. We have no bones of Jesus for he was resurrected. So we have nothing from him. Yeah, the Gospels, of course. But the only thing we have from him is the Shroud of Turin. So for the first Christians, that was a very important relic. I claim it's a relic. And not an icon. It was not painted, and I show that in my book in several ways that it was not a painting. I gave even more than 11 reasons why it cannot be a painting. So anyway, to make a long story short, it ended up in Turin, and it's still there, well protected. And that is a little bit of the problem around the shroud. They have to protect it, protect it so much that scientists are hardly allowed to touch it because it's the only thing we have left so it is uh, it is now in a in a bulletproof uh, encasement 
It is temperature controlled. Uh, we control it for any chemicals that could come in and could detriment it. And the few scientists who have been allowed to do something with it, uh, there are not that many, but we still have a lot of information that scientists can chew on and blow it up with their famous kind of we know it all. And in the book, I will show do they really know it all. One thing you had mentioned that, you know, the Shroud is truly, other than the Gospels, an account of Christ's crucifixion. And this is one of the things that fascinates me looking at it, you know, when you do the analysis of what the image actually shows, especially in the reverse photography, that it truly shows what is described in the Gospels. Yes, yes. There is a very close match between what we know from the Gospel and what the Shroud of Turin told us. And sometimes people say, yeah, of course, uh, of course, that is a very close match because we uh, we changed everything in the in, in the course of the centuries. But certain things you can't change easily. We find, for instance, that he was uh, probably not crucified on the the kind of cross that we know nowadays with a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. But he probably carried only the horizontal beam. Mm-hmm. We know that from some other descriptions about crucifixion. And it's interesting to see that on the shroud, that's where we find wounds on the back of his shoulder blades. So it's, um, that is amazing. And, and, and then we find very early on, we find all kinds of icons and pictures that have more or less the, the shapes of what we see on the shroud. Not surprisingly, because most people knew the shroud from either um, uh, Edessa, Constantinople, uh, and of course later on in France and Italy, but they, they were familiar with that picture somehow. And that is kind of surprising, I would say. So when the first pictures were taken of that shroud by uh, Secundo Pia, an, an Italian photographer, he, um, he, he just looked at the negatives of the photos and he saw the reverse of the light and dark values and he saw a very dramatic picture that the naked eye was hardly able to decipher because there are so many burn marks and patches and water stains and creases on the shroud that we need computer techniques or photography or 3D photography to get that information out of the shroud. And then it is a real surprising kind of linen. It's, it's amazing how many details we find on there. And they all show that we have, uh, um, we have wounds on the wrists of the arms, not in the hands itself, like later on we, we find Christians thinking that he was nailed in the hand, but that is very unlikely. And the, the shroud teaches us that it was not done in the hands itself, but in the in the wrist section. For in the hands, it, it would tear, uh, if the nail were put through the hands, it would tear apart through the weight of the body. So, interestingly enough, that the shroud knows more than many Christians think they know. And it's, uh, besides we know also through other photography, uh, especially done by two physicists, they used 
3D images from that we found in, uh, in uh, astronomy. Uh, the people who uh, who used uh, 3D pictures to find distance information. How can we find distance on the shroud? Because when you study the the variation in brightness levels, these two uh, physicists who were uh, basically very involved with Los Alamos National Laboratory, they, uh, they knew that you can translate them by computer analysis into distance information. So we got basically 3D images on the shroud. That is amazing. No artist could have created that on his own, especially not that long ago. And that's the thing that you know, fascinates me is, you know, the assumption that someone forged this. And when you look at all the detail, the technology was not there even, you know, 500 years ago to do this, much less, you know, a thousand years ago or something. Oh, yeah. That, that, that is one strong argument to say it is definitely not a, a, a piece that was painted. In, in my book, I give 10 more reasons why it cannot be painted. But I, I, I say to the readers, plus read it, and, and you will find out the many reasons. Otherwise, you will fall asleep while I am explaining that. Again, we're talking with Dr. Gerard for sure and about his book, A Catholic Scientist Champions the Shroud of Turin. Now, one of the things most all our listeners have probably heard is that uh, several years ago they did carbon dating and found that it was a fake from the Middle Ages. You debunked this in your book. What was the problem oh, yes. with the carbon dating? Oh, that carbon dating was a, was a disaster, actually. But I must say it revived my interest in the Schout when I heard that they said in the name of science, with the authority of science, as you know what that is worth, they, uh, they dated it between 1260 and 1390. My gosh, that's 12 centuries ago. That, that, that's nothing. That was when, when you compare it with the historical analysis I gave you, if you really take that, then it was before it even Constantinople in 1204 was already too long, too far away. That, that would not be possible. And we have definite evidence, historical evidence, that Schout was in Constantinople. So how could it have been there if it didn't exist yet? So I, it, it, it spurred me to find out what is wrong with that carbon dating. The, the carbon dating was very controversial. But those guys, they didn't tell you that. The, there were only three laboratories involved. The, the original uh, you know, uh, contract they had was for seven laboratories. For some reason, they reduced that to three. We don't know too much about that background, but it was only in three laboratories. And besides, what did they test for carbon uh, the carbon dating is, in general, quite reliable, but only if the, the cloth they had was a sample of the entire shroud. And, of course, the, the Vatican did not allow those scientists to take something out of the center of the shroud because that's where the picture is located, mm -hmm. and they didn't want that to be uh, damaged. 
So should we blame the, the Vatican? No, we, we can't really. But those scientists should have realized that the sample they took was from a side part. And the side part was later on attached to the shroud again. Uh, it was probably used to wrap up the shroud during the burial practice, the Jewish burial practices. But that part was a very small part at the corner. And that part had always been touched by people who, who displayed the shroud. Uh, usually bishops or priests put it up and they held it horizontally at that end. So that end also has a lot of DNA on it and uh, marks from the hands of these people. It was very much contaminated. And not only was it contaminated by other cells that are on the hands of people, but also by dyes they had used to, to color that part a little. So I, uh, I say they, that, that was the wrong piece they worked with. And uh, did they realize that? Uh, I, 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 I don't know. But what is, what is very strange about the whole thing is that that group of free scientists, they, they sent their information to the, the, the museum in London, and they kept that information. And it was not completely released. Uh, nowadays we know that in politics too they, they release only what they want to release but they did something similar they were ahead of their time so there was a, a French scientist Casabianca an Italian name but he, uh, he, he, he worked in France and he quested he requested all the information so he actually took them to court And he said he filed a freedom of information request. And finally, after 30 years, it was in 2017, they released all the dates. And they were analyzed by Casabianca. And he said, oh, there was so much in there that fell outside the range that they published in 1988 in the scientific journal Nature. So... Even the, the, the procedures behind it were very doubtful. And, and as I said already before, there are, were so many impurities on that sample that they worked with. They should have at least mentioned that all the time. They should have said, yeah, there were dyes added in the past. Dirty hands had handled and touched the cloth in its history. There is bacterial contamination and so on and so on. No wonder that uh, they came up with a date that is much closer to the current time, let's say 1200, which is v basically very recent in the history of the Schout. But they were never willing to completely admit that. So it was a dubious sample. And I, I had many reasons to, 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 to show that in my book. Again, you have to read the book to find out more of the details. I, I just give you a very global outline. Now, you had mentioned that there are other ways of, you know, estimating the actual age of the shroud. One of those you mentioned in the books is the actual cloth itself, the textile that they used. 
What can you tell us about this that sort of, again, encourages us to believe in the, uh, that this is truly the shroud, of the burial shroud of Jesus? Yeah, you, you wouldn't expect that the textile analysis would give us much hope, but it actually does. It, it was a, a burial cloth. It was made of high-quality linen. Uh, we can still testify to that. And it's interesting that in, in, in the Gospel it says, yeah, in the Gospel of St. John, it, it's, uh, and, and, and the three other Gospels too, that it was bought by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man. And apparently the textile that was used and that we still find on the shroud was a very rich kind of textile, very fine fibers uh, made of hand-spun flax. So it was a, a very precious kind of cloth. It was not just one, uh, one sheep kind. So we, uh, we, we have some analysis from a Swiss scientist, Mechthild Flurry Lemberg, and she's an expert on that. And she found out that most of that material is very old. That was already confirmed by uh, chemists who said that the, the, the percentage of vanilla that should be in there that decays over time. And there is hardly any vanilla left on it. And that is very unusual. That means it's very old because it had time to decay. So we, uh, we have to realize that the age is much older than we think. And uh, the expert I mentioned already from Switzerland, she found a, a matching pattern uh, on the cloth that we also find in another place where we would not expect it, in Masada, Israel. Masada was a, a, a refuge place for the Jews during the Roman Empire when the Romans were trying to demolish and, uh, uh, and devastate Jerusalem. They fled to Masada. And in Masada, we find tombs that have that same kind of pattern on their uh, shrouds, on their, where people were buried. So, and Masada is from... 70 after the death of Jesus so it it's definitely that old I would say for we never find that pattern anymore later on in the middle ages or so and and besides there are also the Dead Sea Scrolls and this the Dead Sea Scrolls were found near the Dead Sea and they had a lot of scripture texts in there uh, and they were sometimes wrapped in a linen that had that very same pattern again. So it was really a Jewish pattern that we do not find later on. Again, that dates the shroud back to the first century, which is amazing when you compare that with what those three superheroes of data carbon analysis had claimed. They 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 come they they <laughs> They shrivel apart when you hear all of this, I would say. And I must say, I'm happy to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is one of the things that's so astonishing that, you know, we do have other samples of cloth dated in the first century that 
match the shroud and there's nothing else later that we've ever found that is the same sort of material and so you know the dating just by comparison to that seems to again verify that it is from the first century yeah and, and as i mentioned already chemists have also confirmed that uh, usually in flags and that was used for this kind of cloth there is phenylene as i mentioned already uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the the, 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 the the linens from Masada do not contain vanillin anymore because they are so old. And we don't find vanillin anymore in the Shroud of Turin. So another indication that it's much older than those uh, um, scientists from uh, date carbon dating claimed. Now, we just talked about the textile evidence and the fact that it, you know, dates it in the first century, but the pollen evidence also places it in Jerusalem. What can you tell us about the pollen evidence? Yes, another important confirmation for the age of the Schout, that it's was not made in France, that it was not painted somewhere in Europe later on. It is much older, and we know that because, there are, you know, we are now in the pollen season, so people with allergies, they know very clearly that there is uh, pollen in the air. So that pollen gets spread all over the place, for, especially for wind pollination. There are also pollens that are carried by insects, but that's not what we are talking about here. We're talking about the pollens that are spread by the wind. So what did uh, scientists do? The first one already in 1973, he, uh, they, they put tape on the, the shroud so they could pull off without damaging the shroud anything that is on the cover of it. And one of the things that came out of it were pollens. And this man in 1973, he was a forensic scientist from Switzerland. He, uh, he found pollen grains from 58 species of plants. 17 were indigenous to Europe, including Liri and Chambéry, of course, because that's where the shroud had been. But he also found many pollens indigenous for plants indigenous to the area of the Dead Sea and Turkey. So that is already much, much older. And if people say, yeah, of course, that, that was done by a, by a Catholic scientist. Mm, interestingly enough, these results were confirmed by Israeli botanists. One uh, professor at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, he identified 28 species of pollen and labeled many of them as unique to Jerusalem. So somehow the shroud had been in Jerusalem. Not surprisingly, for as everyone knows, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And that's where he was buried. And that's why the shroud has pollens from those areas on it. Uh, later on, uh, a geneticist also analyzed the, the DNA of those pollens and found that they also were native to the Mediterranean area, which includes Jerusalem. So it, I find it hard to, uh, to deny that the shroud is much older than the 12th century. 
it is much older. And the Schout keeps surprising us. And it even surprises us by surviving scientific scrutiny. It always comes out again as a Schout that was in Jerusalem. So the, the pollen analysis is, is, is very powerful. Another indication. So we have uh, the textile, we have the carbon analysis, sorry, we have the, the pollen analysis, we have the historical records. They all point to Jerusalem. How it got, as I told you already, from Jerusalem to what we call now uh, Edessa and places like that, that is a little more vague. But still, there was somehow a, a, a trace. And I think I, I should mention one more important information. That is, we all know from the gospel that Jesus had a crown of thorns on his head. Whether it was really a crown, that is not so clear. It was probably more like a cap or, a, you know, a pet that, uh, that was made of thorns. But we don't know of anyone who was crucified wearing a crown of thorns. Only Jesus did. And we have many records of Roman Jews who were crucified. It was a very common uh, punishment technique in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was until the, the fourth century when it was replaced by uh, uh, the, the, the emperor at that time with hanging. But it was very common. But not a crown of thorns. And we see on the shroud that Ye Jesus has wounds on his head, on top of his head, and those are definitely blood stains. How do we know it's blood and not painting? Because there is iron in it. And iron is a component of human blood and animal blood too, by the way. But it's um, definitely a part of human blood. So we know it's definitely a blood stain. And again, another indication that it was Jesus' shroud and not from some Roman uh, criminal. Again, I want to remind our listeners that we're talking to Dr. Gerard Fershuren about his book, A Catholic Scientist Champions, The Shroud of Turin. Now, we talked about the crown of thorns, and you said it looked more like a helmet than the crown, probably, based on the evidence of the wounds that are marked on the shroud. Now, they have done blood analysis on the samples from the shroud also. What did those show? Yeah, they, as I said, they do show that there was uh, hemoglobin in there. There was iron in there, and iron is part of the hemoglobin molecule, and the hemoglobin molecule is part of blood. So uh, it's, it's, it's very definite almost that uh, there is blood on there. Whose blood it is? Yeah, sorry, I have bad news. We don't know that. Uh, we know a little bit more about the blood that we find on there, uh, and it has been claimed that uh, it is actually blood of the uh, AB type. Uh, probably most people realize that when you have a blood transfusion, 
they find out what your blood type is. Is it A or B or AB or zero? None of them. Uh, it says that this blood was AB uh, uh, from, yeah. I find that a little bit controversial because how do we know that? They, they look for antibodies. I, I know that word I can use now during this uh, Huan virus epidemic. Those antibodies gradually disappear. So because they get defragmented and, you know, there is always a, a process going on in things. And so the fact that there are no anti-A and anti-B antibodies doesn't mean that they were not there. So it's hard to claim that it was AB blood, and some even say it was rhesus negative. Um, all I can say is, but I didn't mention that in my book, that um, some people say it's interesting that there are, we know miracles where um, host blood and that kind of things that also was shown to be AB blood um, I I don't go into that discussion too much for, uh, that is a little dubious maybe but I, I just mention it we don't know much more about it and besides and that is more detrimental I think we don't really know if we don't know whether this blood was AB or not we don't know what Jesus' blood was. Is, was it AB? Okay, and this is a slight confirmation. If we don't know, yep, then we don't know. And besides, I, I don't think it will help us much to determine which person was buried in the shroud. We have uh, more indications that it was Jesus with a crown of thorns, and it was Jesus because he, uh, he, he was in a linen that was bought by Joseph Arimathea, probably, because it was a rich linen. So I, I guess that's where our knowledge ends. I wish I could say more, but I, uh, I think that is a little bit uh, the non-fiction area. I'm but a little skeptical there. Well, uh, this is one of the things that I uh, loved about your book is the fact that you're not afraid to say there's things we don't know that we can't be sure of, but there's so much supporting evidence here that you're still willing to say that you're pretty certain this is a relic and not just an icon, that this was the burial shroud of Jesus. Correct. Yeah, I am, I am very certain about that. I'm willing to give my life for that conviction, but it's, um, I, I would say there are so many indications that it was really a relic of Jesus and not an icon. And unfortunately, the, uh, the official representatives of the Catholic Church have always been a little hesitant to say whether it was a relic or an icon. Uh, it would be an icon if it was painted, for instance. You know, as we know, icons from the, the, the Orthodox churches, they are all painted. This was not painted, and I show that very extensively in my book, that it's not a painted uh, image. So there is so much indication that it was a real image. So if, it's, um, if that's the case, then uh, 
we, we would be dealing with a relic and not an icon. Why doesn't the church recognize that? I, I think the main reason why uh, goes back to St. John Paul II. He was uh, very cautious when there was a conflict, a seeming conflict between what religion says and what science says, he usually took the side of science. He had learned that lesson from the infamous Galileo case in the church history. Galileo was always painted as a, the victim of church prosecution. He was not a victim. Um, Galileo claimed much more than he could prove. I showed that in other books. Uh, and he, um, he is sometimes taken as the, the hero of heliocentrism, uh, that the sun is in the middle of our, uh, uh, our uh, planetary system and not the earth. Yep, yep. Again, the, the arguments uh, Galileo used were not strong and one were actually wrong. And he was never really uh, prosecuted by the church for that. He was more prosecuted that he, that, that he made claims about religion, about how to read the Bible. And, but let's not go into that discussion. But the, the Pope, especially John Paul II, had learned that lesson. He said, we have to be very careful not to declare anything that is not the religion uh, section as science. So he, uh, he basically said uh, the church has, will never make heliocentrism a dogma. Dogmas are part of what the church says. So he was very careful, especially after the, the carbon dating, and when he did not know much, much yet about how dubious that result was, he, he was careful. And I appreciate that in John Paul II. We have to be careful and not claim things that we can't really claim as a church official. And then later on, his successors uh, followed his steps like... Benedict the Sixteenth, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, now the former Pope, he uh, he also spoke several times of a icon, mm -hmm. another relic. Uh, um, the current Pope is a little bit more open to it. I think he used one time the word relic, but in general he would also say it was an icon of the. The, the, the famous love God gave us by sending his son down to earth, by having him crucified, and by his crucifixion, he has redeemed us from our sins. And that's an important point that the church has to tell us. That's the territory of the church. Yes. Whether it's really a relic, that is not really the church's position, and it cannot claim that authority unless it receives revelation from Jesus himself or from God that this was really an icon, no, a relic. And that hasn't happened yet. We've I'm only got a couple, uh, Dr. Rochure, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, and uh, 
I wanted to allow you to talk a little bit about where can our listeners get a copy of your book. It, it was probably published, or certainly published, by Sophia Institute. So, sophiainstitute.com, or they can go to my website. Uh, it's a little complicated one. It's called where do we come from dot com. But you have to separate all the words by dashes. Where dash do dash we dash come dash from dot com. And that shows you all the books I have written, inclu- written including the one that you are mentioning today, the a Catholic Scientist Champions the Shout of Turin. I uh, I don't feel a champion, but uh, the Shroud is a champion. Yes, but that you did a, you did such a wonderful job of explaining why you believe this to be a relic and why there are so many things that science can't tell us about the Shroud, because the thing is they can't even tell us how the image got there, and yet they judge whether or not it's real. So yeah, correct. Correct, Mike. You said it well. Yes. And, and, and I am very grateful that I had a chance to show this to your listeners. Well, thank you very much for being on the air. I want to remind our listeners, next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host. And in the meantime, when you're judging the values of heaven and earth, always round up. <laughs>